You know what I really love? Being right. (laughs) Conveniently, that happens to me all the time. I mean, you just would not believe it. (laughs) Every day. Right, 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 right. It's wonderful, actually, knowing that you're always right. That you always have the truth. Good reason to go into this gig, actually, although I might have picked the wrong congregation for (laughs) universal acceptance of the truth that I say. Hmm. Anyway, it's wonderful knowing that even if you don't have the truth when you start out, you can always find the truth, right? That's what the scientific spirit is all about, I think. Galileo said, all truths are easy to understand, not even discoverable, but easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them. And I saw a great, uh, a great photo going around Facebook. Actually, I posted it on my Facebook page the other day um, with a quote from Carl Sagan, beautiful picture of the cosmos. And Carl Sagan said, the truth may be puzzling, It may take some work to grapple with. It may be counterintuitive. It may contradict deeply held prejudices. It may not be consonant with what we desperately want to be true. But our preferences do not determine what's true. What's true determines what's true, right? And we can go out and figure it out and find it. The truth is out there. The truth that will set us free or... Whatever it is, the truth is out there and we can find it. That's certainly the scientific response. And humanism, the kind of broad movement that ethical culture is a part of, has been informed by scientific thought and really by the idea of the scientific method. The process of discovery of truth, it's been informed by that method at least since the early 20th century when humanism was kind of beginning to coalesce in America. Now, it doesn't mean that we always know the truth in this particular moment, but it means that it's always out there, waiting to be discovered, that we can find it. And when we find it, it'll be easy to understand, as Galileo promised. Sometimes we get it wrong initially, and so then part of our job is to be open to the physicists that will come after us. But science in general, I think, and humanism to a large extent, is built around the idea that, as Carl Sagan says, there's a truth out there that our preferences don't determine, that exists with a kind of capital T, if only we can find it. The scientific method isn't just for science. We think this not just about scientific truths, I think, in the humanist community. We think it about religion, too. Progressive religious folks think this often. It's certainly part of how I grew up about spiritual and ethical truths. I remember a magnet that I had growing up as a Unitarian Universalist that sort of talked about some of the key tenets of Unitarian Universalism. And what I remember from that magnet is one of the tenets was we all know a piece of the truth. Was the idea that um, that we wouldn't know the whole truth, each of us, but that you know coming together we would know a piece of it. There's a story that you've heard, I'm sure, that relates to that idea, I think, that takes the kind of um, 
pro progressive concept of each having a little piece of the big truth. You know, that we don't, we don't know it all, we don't hold it all, but we each have a piece of it. And so there's a story that I'm sure you know about the, um, the many wise men, it's always wise men, the many um, wise men that have gathered and the, and the king is they're having disagreements and the king asks them to close their eyes or be blindfolded and then to take hold of a part of an animal and to tell them what animal that is. You know this story, right? And so the one person grabs hold to this long, ropey thing and says, well, this is an animal with a long, ropey thing. You know, that's what this animal looks like. And then somebody else grabs hold of this big, round thing and says, no, there's this big, long, long, long round thing. And it's, it's kind of like a huge tube, and it moves. Um, and then somebody else has a big flappy piece, and of course, you know, it turns out that all of these wise people gathered around, sure that they have the truth, sure that they're describing exactly what this animal is like, are really grasping little pieces of the big truth. They're grasping little parts of an elephant, right? You know, it's an elephant. You know, and um, and ultimately they can come together and and. Um, and describe their experiences to each other, and someone, presumably the king, can kind of put all of those ideas together and figure out that indeed it is an elephant there. It's interesting because I've always thought of that story as being a kind of opening to how we look at truth, you know, that, that we don't always see the whole elephant in front of us. We can't always look and see, well, there it is, you know, that's the elephant. Sometimes we only have the rope. And so I've always thought that this was kind of a, a really open, progressive way to imagine truth. We each hold a little piece of it, and if we put it together, we can get to the big truth. But as I've been thinking about this platform and about truth kind of metaphysically, I begin to wonder, what if there actually isn't an elephant? What if there is no elephant in the room, as they say. What if we're grabbing hold of different things and that's sort of the whole reality there? And that's the big question that I've been grappling with, whether there really is a truth out there, whether Carl Sagan and Galileo and the scientific method and all of that is always right. And, and really whether that elephant story is right. Right? Whether progressive religion is right, that if we look enough and share our stories enough and put the pieces together enough, that we'll find some factual thing that exists, some truth out there, some reality. Or are there times when the truth simply doesn't exist, at least as we imagine it? When it is totally unknowable and will remain so forever? And then, is not being able to know the truth the same thing as it not existing? Anyway. And does any of that matter, or is this just sort of philosophical navel-gazing? That's a question, too, I think. There are times, of course, when it feels as though the truth matters really deeply. I think often we think about the, the criminal justice system there. We think about sort of trying to find out what the truth is. Um, to prove someone's guilt or innocence. And we think about cases, too, where, where people have been found guilty and then later, you know, it comes out through new DNA evidence or new ways of looking at things that indeed they were innocent. And that feels like this deep travesty of justice. It is, right? You know, the truth wasn't known fully. And it's important to know the truth. I think, too, about modern kind of justice issues, really, where it feels as though truth 
is really important. Perry Bider was talking about the Earth Ethics movie that's coming up next Sunday, which I believe is about climate change, and that's a place where I think we hear a lot of conversation about truth, you know, and, and kind of the denial of truth, the importance of truth, how, how truth impacts what we do in our national and international legislation. So there are these places in our lives where it feels as though we really do need to know what the truth is. You know, it's important to state it, to find it. It has to exist because it changes how we act in the world. So then I wonder if there are times, if there ever is a time when truth doesn't exist. And I think about human experience, which is really what the elephant story is about in a lot of ways, you know. You know, we don't actually often have a high need to figure out what giant animal is in a room. But we do often find that we have different experiences of the same situation, different sides to the same story. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. I have, probably because I know I'm always right. And then, you know, when I'm in a conversation with someone like, oh, I don't know, my husband or something, um, <laughs> I so often wish I had a tape recorder. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, if we had just, if we had, just had a tape recorder, I would be able to rewind, and then you would see, obviously, that I was right. But I wonder sometimes... You know, if we had that tape recorder and we could play it back and listen, I don't always think that we would, that it would lead us to the same conclusion. You know, I'm not always sure that if you can listen to those words that you wouldn't end up in just the same place you were before you had the tape recorder. Except maybe grumpier, because somebody just made you play the tape recorder back. That is, that, that going back to the experience doesn't necessarily change the fact that you've had a different experience with it. That two people have come out in the same situation and the same conversation, the same words, and not through faulty memory, not through mishearing or misunderstanding, have felt differently about it, have understood it differently, have heard a different truth, and hold a different truth. I think most times that tape recorder wouldn't really change a thing. I think about this kind of thing, about sort of whether truth exists, not just when I'm wishing for a tape recorder in my own personal, you know, domestic life, but, but also when I'm doing interfaith work. I think about that a lot, actually. We talked about this a few weeks ago here at West. We talked about kind of different religions and whether... Um, whether they're more, same, more the same or more different, and whether the differences are really vital and important. Whether we're all searching after the same truth and just seeing different pieces of it, or if there are fundamentally different truths. And whether it's possible, if there are fundamentally different truths, for them to all be true. You know, can that be right? I don't think Carl Sagan thinks so. It's an uncomfortable place for me sometimes when I'm doing interfaith work. I feel like I do really well on respect and tolerance and interest and curiosity. And for me, personally, I do have a kind of belief that there's something, some connection to our universe, a kind of oneness with each other and with the world that all of the religions are searching after, at least. 
and which I can see being pursued in these different ways and really kind of enjoy the differences. And then I'm, I'm pretty good on images and language and metaphor. Having been raised in a progressive religious tradition, I, I have a pretty good comfort level with, you know, those can all kind of mean different things for different people, what we're talking about. There's a Khalil Gibran quote I found that speaks to that kind, I think, of approach. Your truth, he capitalizes it too, actually, at least in this translation, that your truth, capital T, shall meet my truth in the coming world and blend together like the fragrance of flowers and become one whole and eternal truth, perpetuating and living in the eternity of love and beauty. Isn't that great? I love that. I want to live there. <laughs> but then, you know, there are some things in other religious traditions that I, I just don't believe. I don't believe that they're true. I cannot say that they're true. And so what does that say then about the people who do believe them? People who I care about deeply and have strong relationships with. People whose values and opinions, whose truth I respect. Are they really believing something that isn't true? Another way to see this is to sort of go totally postmodern on truth. Umberto Eco, the Italian writer, said, I have come to believe that the whole world is an enigma, a harmless enigma that is made terrible by our own mad attempt to interpret it as though it had an underlying truth. It's kind of the opposite of the Carl Sagan, I don't know, you want them on flip sides of a needlepoint pillow or something. <laughs> but it's hard, you know, when you have really deep relationships with somebody who believes something that you, that you can't say is true for you. What do you do with that? Or that you can't say is true. Maybe the with you actually betrays where I often end up. So religion maybe is just too hard to kind of try to figure this out. I think we should go to something easy like racism. <laughs> it's no problem, right? I was thinking, I started first thinking about the idea of truth. Actually, I got the idea for wanting to do this platform a number of months ago when I was at a... Um, an open mic session that our, our sister congregation right down the street, All Souls, sponsored. Um, I was there with another West member, and we were, um, we were there to learn more about what the, the presentation was about racial profiling, particularly in D.C., uh, around arrests in D.C. And it started out with just exactly the kind of presentation that, um, that folks like me love. <laughs> There was a, a lawyer from the ACLU, a young woman who, who was an organizer, kind of on the ground, but, you know, also a lawyer, so then that's good. And, um, and she had charts and graphs and um, a video presentation and a pamphlet. <laughs> and, um, and she had all of this evidence about racial profiling in D.C. and about racial, you know, racial disparities in arrests, and she could show you kind of the graphs and where all of the arrests were. You know, if you look at the dividing line of 16th Street, it kind of looks like nobody west of 16th Street, um, well, certainly nobody west of 16th Street seems to be arrested for drug use. I'm not totally sure that nobody west of 16th Street 
is using drugs. I'm not sure that that's right. So she sort of set up all of these things. And, um, and then at the end of this really great um, evidence-based uh, presentation, she said this. It was so, um, I liked it so much that I actually wrote it down in my phone word for word. So this is what, this is what she said. Nowhere in these numbers, all those beautiful numbers she had, nowhere in these numbers can we prove racial profiling. Because racial profiling is an experience, and you learn it through the stories. Isn't that a powerful statement? A powerful statement, especially for somebody who just gave you a whole bunch of graphs. You know, she did the work. She did the evidence. And then she told us that if we really wanted to know the truth about racial profiling, we had to hear the stories. And that was the whole rest of that evening. It was an open mic um, for people to come up and share their experiences about racial profiling, about what they had experienced uh, in D.C. And, and what their truth was around racial profiling. And, and she was right that the numbers and the little dots on the map you know, it got you ready, maybe, to hear the stories. That was true for me. But it was the stories that made me believe it. It's a perfect example, I think, of, of kind of how you can have such different experiences of the same situation and wonder which one is true. That comes a lot when we have people who have different identities, identities that, um, that matter, that are privileged, that are valued in our society, and identities that are historically marginalized and disenfranchised in our society. And we all have different of those identities within us. We're all, you know, kind of one in, in one part of us and one in another part of us. We carry all of those together. But people with different identities can often have the same exact experience. I mean, you really could use a tape recorder and take away very different truths from that experience. And so one of the things that I've learned to do in, in conversations about race and racism in particular as a white person, I've actually learned to listen more to the truth of others, to listen more to the truth of the people of color in the room. And to be willing to set aside my own truth and experience. It's kind of a, a willing suspension of disbelief in some ways, you know. I'll hear stories and think, oh, surely that can't be right. That's not, that's not really how it is, right? That's not how I experience the world. But then I look around at the country, at the system of injustice, at the disparity of arrests, in D.C. and all across the country about the differentials in poverty and education levels. And, and I realize that there must be something that I, that I don't see, experiences that I don't have, that my truth can't possibly be the whole truth. It can't possibly be other people's truths. Really, that my truth, I guess, is wrong. It's one of the things that's hardest about anti-racism work, especially for those of us who, like me, as you'll remember, are always right. <laughs> it's hard to be wrong in that way. And at the same time, it's such a gift to me. This regular practice of valuing another person's experience above my own, basically. Of trying to listen to it more than I listen 
to mine. So what do I do, what can I do, what should we do about that pesky piece around religious truth, metaphysical truth? Obviously, part of the answer is is told in the fact that I stand before you serving this congregation, not another congregation with different beliefs. I mean, there are things that I think are true and, and things that aren't true. Or aren't true for me. Remember that part of the phrase that I often put on. Spinoza, who is a kind of progressive thinker in many ways, not all, he had an interesting way to look at the idea of faith and differences in belief and in truth. Here's what he said. As men's habits of mind differ so that some more readily embrace one form of faith and some another, for what moves one to pray may move another to scoff, I conclude that everyone should be free to choose for himself the foundations of his creed and that faith should be judged only by its fruits. We'll return to that a little bit later, but keep in mind that idea that faith is judged by its fruits, by what comes from it. I think that there's a certain amount of mysticism that's required if you really go deep enough in interfaith work. Certainly that's been true for me. And also an element of letting go of needing to know. That ultimately it's not my job, actually, to decide whether what I believe is definitely for sure true, it really is the elephant, and this is a kangaroo over here or something, I don't know, that it's not my job to decide whether what I believe is true and whether what someone else believes is not true or, or is true, and I'm the one that got it wrong. In some ways, it leads me to think that the whole concept of truth with a capital T might have just a little bit of hubris to it. A little bit of overinflated pride. I was working on this platform yesterday and um, kind of feeling mopey and gray. You know, it was rainy out and it was sort of wet. And um, so I was just trying to relax a little bit and my, um, my older daughter said she would read me a story. And she, she brought the story, which has been our story for the month. Some of you might remember hearing it a couple of weeks ago, Old Turtle and the Broken Truth. That's just what she picked up in her room and brought over to me and started reading and rediscovering with me what that story said. You remember there's a truth that kind of falls out of the sky and it breaks apart. And so the people start fighting over this broken truth which says you are loved. And then eventually they figure out that they've, they're missing half the truth, which says, and so are they, and they put the truth together, and it's really lovely, and so you are loved, and so are they, and there's this kind of big, um, this big moment. And it got me thinking about the people in that story who are filled themselves with hubris, with pride, <laughs> with greed, really, at their possession of what they think is the particular truth, the capital T truth, this little broken truth that they have. And that part of the story is, is that, you know, you shouldn't hang on to broken truths. 
that you need the whole one put together. But part of the story, too, I don't know if you remember Old Turtle at the very end when, when Old Turtle gives the little girl the other half of the truth so she can put them back together and help her, her people and her land to heal. Part of what Old Turtle says when he gives that to her is that she has to remember all of the little truths, too. That that, that, that whole one, even when it's put back together, isn't the only one out there. That there are truths in the rocks and in the winds and... Each animal has a piece of truth as well, has their own truth. So I was thinking about that idea, about many truths. And then there's a, there's a great passage in a book I read recently in Allegiant by Veronica Roth, one of these sort of dystopian novels that I, that I often quote because they're my favorite thing to read. And the character is... Is talking, there's a main character is talking to another person, another woman. And the other woman says, they're talking about whether something is true or not. And she says, well, you don't believe things because they make your life better. You believe them because they're true, she points out. Which sounds actually almost exactly like the Carl Sagan quote. You know, your preferences don't make what's true, true. Something is true, whether or not it's your preference that it's true. So you don't believe things because they make your life better. You believe them because they're true, she points out. But, this is the main character now, I speak slowly as I mull that over. Isn't looking at the result of a belief a good way of evaluating if it's true? Truth, I think, can't be totally divorced from values. Nothing can. And so I started thinking about what it would mean for us to prioritize values instead of truth. The truth may be unknowable. It may not even exist in any clear, absolute way. But values are something that we build together as a community, as families, as couples, as individuals. Remember how I said that our judicial system was a place where figuring out the truth really matters, figuring out what really happened. And that's true Our judicial system is built on the idea, though, that that truth can always be determined. And sometimes that is possible, I think. Sometimes it feels pretty clear-cut, but sometimes it's not. In this community, we've had different conversations about restorative justice, about, about a different approach to something being broken, something being wrong, a crime being committed. And I I was thinking about that and the idea of truth and values and that restorative justice is about telling truths. It's about always there's an element of people telling each other the truth that they've experienced. But that ultimately it's not really about kind of finding out the truth, but about, about building something new and whole together. It's about values, I think creating a new truth, perhaps, based on those values, based on the community values together. Values are much more interesting to talk about in some ways than the kind of hard and line, hard and fast line of truth, the dividing line in the sand. And it gets us, I think, beyond the theoretical, the remembered, the tape recorder version, into the present and the possible, what we can build together. William James put it this way. He said, pragmatism asks its usual question. Pragmatism is a a philosophical tradition, right? 
And here's what he says that tradition asks. Grant an idea or belief to be true, it says. What concrete difference will its being true make in anyone's actual life? How will the truth be realized? What experiences will be different from those which, which would obtain if the belief were false? What, in short, is the truth's cash value in experiential terms? Pragmatism, pragmatism for you, the truth's cash value. But I think in some ways what he's saying isn't so far from what Spinoza was saying a little while ago, the idea of judging faith, you know, leaving matters of individual faith up to the individual and to faith and judging it on the fruits, judging it on, on what it turns into, what it becomes in our lives and in the community judging truths by the values that they hold, by the difference that they make in the world. I think in the end, that idea isn't really postmodern so much or postmodern gone wild. The idea of values being more important than truth, or at least being more creative and co-creative and knowable and interesting, you still have to, as a family, or as a community, or as a person, decide what those values are and keep them in front of you, pointing the way. Now, I don't know. It so often happens when I think about big questions. You know, you remember this. Maybe when you first took a, a philosophy class or read a philosophical book, I remember, remember the first time I opened a book like that, I thought to myself, well, you know, you just end up kind of in, in, these, in these circles in your head to a point where ultimately you seem to be arguing that there's no such thing as truth and it doesn't matter anyway. And I still teach my children to tell the truth, to say what they know to be true. You know, you can't really go to a five-year-old and say, actually, truth is a really big concept. <laughs> I don't know who took that cookie on a metaphysical level, anyway. <laughs> but maybe what I want to teach them along with it, along with the importance of telling their truth, maybe what I want to teach them is, is that it is their truth, and that they might hold that truth humbly, hold it with some sense of humility. And maybe to seek out the chance to be with people whose truths are different from their own. Not necessarily the truths about who took the cookie from the cookie jar, but, but the bigger ones. Not to see a different truth as a stopping place, but as a starting place for a conversation. And then I think back, of course, to that that great story that we read to our children and then my child read to me. The idea that sometimes we get a broken truth and, and think it's a whole one. And sometimes we forget that there are all sorts of truths all over the place, these little truths that we want to listen to. So there's a quote I'd like to end with like this one from Alfred North Whitehead. And it speaks, I think, to that, to that story in Old Turtle and the Broken Truth. Here's what he said. There are no whole truths. 
All truths are half-truths. It's trying to treat them as whole truths that plays the devil. Sit in the front row. <laughs> very cool. <clears throat> Amanda, thank you for that very thought-provoking. Here we go. That's better. 
Thank you for that thought-provoking talk. Uh, it's quite a coincidence that I'm serving as the efficient today because it turns out my father also always was right. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. And it's really helpful because there's nothing so instructive as a bad example. <laughs> so now is an opportunity for some of us to add our pieces of the truth to the picture that we'll all carry away from us today. Um, I will bring the microphone around if you will raise your hand and do your American Idol thing where you hold the mic really close and say your name and we'll see how many people we can squeeze in here. Hi, I'm Kao. And one of the things I love about the platform today is it clarified for me why I really dislike it when I end a conversation with someone and that person says, let's just agree to disagree. Uh, because it isn't, it, that, that response does not value the other person's truth. And I think that um, this platform is really provocative in terms of what do you say to someone when you don't share the truth, the same truths? Um, and it's just to ask, well, what will you do with your truth? I saw a hand over here somewhere. Thanks. I'm Cynthia. And um, thank you for um, a great platform with good sense of humor. I appreciate that. Um, the thing that gets me about this one, and oh, by the way, I grew up with a mother who always said, am I right or am I right? <laughs> good options. But uh, what gets me about this platform and, and the last one I was at is... Um, the truth, whose truth? Because one person's truth may not be another person's truth. Mm -hmm. And I also really hated it when, when uh, someone, I think my mother, uh, said, well, um, I see that's your perception. <laughs> you know, meaning it's wrong, it's not the truth, <laughs> but if you want to see it that way, you know, it, it, what what do you what do you do about that? I mean, it, it's a uh, and also I think last time it was like one person's right is another person's wrong. People have very you know very different interpretations of right and wrong and of truth and non-truth and of all of these things. We are we are different in our opinions, and sometimes people just can't agree on stuff. And so what do you do about that? My question. I'm Lindsay, and it's so convenient that Perry's right here, so I can say, thank you, Perry. I loved your question in the meditation to look at my to-do list and think about what's the most important. What immediately came to me, the most important is to love. And I love that reminder. Credit where credit is due, Amanda gave me the idea. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm David, and 
I've basically been trained as a scientist where we occasionally can verify whether something's true or not, particularly in engineering. If you really believe that materials will operate in a particular way, you know, the program will run, the plane will fly. So we have a verification of whether something is true. But we're often having to deal with ideas that are not so clear-cut. And a lot of our confusion, I think, can come about when we try to state something in vague terms, a vague generality, and argue about whether it's true or not. And really, of course, there is not going to be any clear-cut answer to that. And occasionally we have great truths like, are we causing climate change, that really are pretty important for us to determine the facts of. But it seems to me that when you're trying to analyze something, you should realize that the human brain doesn't reason its way logically to a conclusion. All too often, the way we work, even very logical people, we guess at the conclusion and then try and backfill the reason. So I think the most important thing for us to ask ourselves when we're trying to analyze the truth of something is, why do you want this to be true? Peter, and uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I've come to realize is that we're pretty well we pretty well agree that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And one of the things that I've learned is there are really two kinds of truth. There's the kind that David was just talking about, and then there's the type that you were spending most of your time talking about. And for me, the kind of truth you are talking about is also in the eye, or is in the mind of the believer. Truth is in the mind of the believer. And, uh, and so respect for the people is crucial. You know, I mean, Spinoza was basically telling us uh, the basis for freedom of religion. And so his conclusion of judging by the fruits, uh, I think, is correct. We haven't figured out how to do that on religions. So we haven't figured out how to say, wait a minute, this religion has gone too far. Although I lived for a long time in the Bay Area, and there we were very aware of the Jonestown situation. And of all religions I can point to to say, that one was not a good one. <laughs> that was it, okay? <laughs> um, and uh, I also love the thing that you were saying about focusing on the values. I think that is, because values sort of contribute to the thinking that then leads us to conclude our truth and so focusing on the values is a great way to talk about things with each other. That is a perfect note for me to end this session on because we are now going to talk about putting our values into action. Um, do we have a representative here today from FFORP? Yeah, he's back there. Would you like to come forward? We often don't get a chance to hear after the fact about the work that our contributions in the Share the Plate uh, uh, after have a neighbor, but I think uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about something that happened because of what we did here last month. Uh, sure, uh, I'm still, and I'm actually the founding director of Family and Friends of Incarcerated People, FFOIP. And I actually didn't intend to speak, I just oh, came. Sorry. <laughs> We miscommunicated. We should have a tape recorder and just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no claim to be right. <laughs> but actually, what I—that's <laughs> that, never a problem. That's never a problem. 
And it's always my pleasure to talk about the work that we do and um, the most important um, thing about the communication between Amanda and me is that I wanted to bring one of the families that as a result of the gracious effort of Wes and those of you who are in the room who made contributions who donated throughout the month of October. I wanted them to come here and talk about the fact that, and, and I may have told the wrong family, but they were the family who, who needed it the most. The mother called me and said, I hadn't seen my son in three years. She talked about stories. And so that would have been a really powerful story for that group of people to come up here and stand and tell you about their visit. We took them to Hazleton, West Virginia, and um, because of your donations, your support, we were able to do that. And, and they had a wonderful uh, visit, and they want to know when they can go again. I said, y'all got to come to West and tell the people, thank you. <laughs> tell them thank you. Tell them about the visit and tell them, you know. They call me the next day and tell me about the son said this and he says that. And I said, y'all got to go to West. And so they were supposed to come with me, but unfortunately, things happened. They couldn't make it. And so I told Amanda, you know, I'm coming anyway just to, just to come, not speak. <laughs> but I thank you on behalf of the family. I thank you on behalf of the organization. And, and we're going to be around and, and do some other things. And incidentally, um, I want to ask a question if I can. Okay. Amanda talked about going to All Souls Church. And she talked about the lawyer and the young lady who's also a lawyer, Seema Sabana. Most people can't even pronounce her name. How many of you would like for that presentation to come here? The presentation about who gets locked up in D.C. Would y'all like for that to happen? Yeah. Okay. Amanda, you said a date. I can get seen. All right. I can get Seema. Seema was also on the panel yes. at Busboys and Poets yes. when we did that piece. And we actually were supposed to do a piece on the 23rd. And so because we can't do that, I know that I can get Seema. You know, things happen, and, and so we're not going to do the 23rd piece. But if you set a date, December, January, whatever you set the date, let me know. I'll get in contact with Seema. We'll get a lawyer. <laughs> and man, we'll bring up the pamphlets. That's yeah. really good. <laughs> because I, it's, it's, it's really important. That That's right in line with the work that we do. It's great having the anecdotal information that Amanda talked so much about and then to be followed up with stories. So we'll work together to bring that here so that y'all will have the first-hand benefit of understanding that data and being able to see it much clearer and seeing a different truth. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, so yes, we are now going to uh, pass the collection baskets. Um, this, as you gathered, if you didn't already know, uh, is something we do every month, and we split the donations 50-50 uh, between Wes and another organization whose values resonate with our own. And this month, that, that organization is the Washington Interfaith Network, uh, with which Wes uh, uh, is a member. And this is uh, helping to pay our dues for our membership in that organization. And I just want you to think about the good work and the consequences and the benefits that you just heard about from what we did last month and imagine what benefit and good work and positive effects is going to come from the work that we're doing this month. 
If you're a newcomer here, just let the basket pass. Uh, otherwise, please be as generous as you can to the work of the WIN Network and the Washington Ethical Society. And let's receive our gift of music from Josh Blinder. Well, I think this is sort of where you kind of come to the crux of truth is relative. How did people see in the 14th century without the use of glasses looking round and round were they all tuned into sound did everything they lay their eyes on seem to merge with the horizon in a big orgasmic frenzy sharpness and light or did they just squint to read the finer print, milling hordes of squinting people going by the church and steeple, crying, Oh God, give us glasses. <laughs> I'm talking to Josh about what music he'll bring on a Sunday, and then he surprises me. <laughs> I'd like to close as our con collection continues with a poem from Walt Whitman. I shared with Josh that this was the poem I was going to close with, and I said it's sort of like a wild and wacky poem, and, and Josh said, that's every poem by Walt Whitman, right? <laughs> and it is. This is called All is Truth. O oh, me, man of slack faith so long, standing aloof, denying portions so long, only aware today of compact, all-diffused truth, discovering today there is no lie or form of lie, and can be none, but grows as inevitably upon itself as the truth does upon itself, or as any law of the earth or any natural production of the earth does. This is curious and may not be realized immediately, but it must be realized. I feel in myself that I represent falsehoods equally with the rest, and that the universe does. Where has failed a perfect return indifferent of lies or the truth? Is it upon the ground or in water or fire or in the spirit of man or in the meat and blood? Meditating among liars and retreating sternly into myself, I see that there are really no liars or lies after all, and that nothing fails its perfect return, and that what are called lies are perfect returns, and that each thing exactly represents itself and what has preceded it, and that the truth includes all and is compact just as much as space is compact, and that there is no flaw or vacuum in the amount of the truth, but that all is truth without exception. And henceforth, I will go celebrate anything I see or am, and sing and laugh and deny nothing.